Good morning, friends. Well, if you haven't discovered it yet, the, the theme for the day is reconciliation and the importance of that to us as believers. If you've been alive very long, you've probably experienced a need for reconciliation to someone uh, in your life, whether it be an estranged friend or, or spouse or cousin or neighbor. We, we've, if you live long enough, you, ha you come across these things and, and experience the, the urge to reconciliation, the, the desire to be made right with somebody. Uh, in your life. Uh, world history is full of, of famous examples of reconciliation. For example, the Hatfields and McCoys. Have you ever heard of them? The, the, the feuding families in the Appalachian Mountains, feud that began in the late 1800s after the Civil War and lasted through 2003. So this family, in 2003, they, they actually, the, the two warring clans got together and signed a reconciliation to declare peace between their clans. And of course, there's all sorts of reconciliations that we're familiar with, like the reconciliation of the North with the South after the Civil War, the, the the Southerners and the Yankees were restored to some degree, although there is still some uh, unfinished business there, it sounds like, but uh, there's those kind of things. There's the reconciliation between Japan and the United States after World War II. So human history is full of examples of reconciliation. We all understand and feel the need to be in a state of reconciliation with those around us. And so we're familiar with the concept and actually uh, enjoy the feeling of reconciliation. It does the heart good, doesn't it? When you see reconciliation between, between two estranged friends or you experience reconciliation yourself, it, it, it is something that does good for us. Well, today's text, if you'll have uh, the opportunity to turn your Bibles to Colossians 1, you will see today with me in verses 20 through 23, God's plan of reconciliation, the, the greatest reconciliation that has ever taken place has now taken place between God and man. Like we just sang, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. And so the Apostle Paul, as he's speaking to the Colossian church, uh, wants them to understand the importance of reconciliation between sinful man and a holy God, which has taken place. So let me read for you, starting in verse 15, just because that's the context, um, and reading through verse 23. <clears throat> he, speaking of Jesus, is the invisible God, he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, were the thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning of the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. 
And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all the creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a minister. And so we have, we have this deep desire, each of us, to see deep wounds healed. And what deeper wound is there between, in all circumstances except the one between God and man? That's the very one that Jesus has come to reconcile. This is what Paul is talking about. The word reconciled that we see there in verse 22 uh, and in verse 20 comes from the Greek word katalasso, katalasso. Uh, Paul adds a preposition to this word. So the word reconciled in the English translation comes from the word katalasso, but the word that Paul used he added a preposition to that word to make it apokatalasso. And Paul did that to emphasize the critical importance of understanding this particular spiritual reality. By adding that, that preposition apo to katalasso, he, what Paul did was communicate to his readers that their reconciliation with God wasn't just the bare minimum, the, the least requirement that was needed to accomplish the task. By adding the preposition, Paul was communicating that the reconciliation to God that we enjoy as Christians is absolutely thorough, absolutely complete, comprehensive, certain, with no chance of failure. That's what that little tiny preposition does to the word katalasso. It's not just simple reconciliation. It's complete and thorough reconciliation provided by our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So as you know, if you've been a Christian for a while or, or read your Bible, reconciliation is one of the five most important words in the New Testament. Reconciliation, along with the terms justification, redemption, forgiveness, and adoption, are critical to understand in your development as a Christian. Let me go through those real briefly, just so that you're on the same page as I am as we're thinking about the idea of reconciliation. Justification, that is, in justification, the sinner, the sinner stands before God guilty and condemned, but because of the work of Jesus Christ, he is declared righteous. He's no longer guilty, he's righteous. That is what justification describes. In forgiveness, the sinner stands before God as a debtor. But because of Jesus, that debt is wiped out. They are now free because of that. In adoption, the sinner stands before God a stranger. But because of Jesus, they are no longer a stranger, but a son. That's what adoption deals with. And then, of course, reconciliation, which is the focus of our study this morning. In reconciliation, the sinner stands before God as an enemy, but because of Jesus, they are now friends. We are friends with, G with God now because of the work of Jesus. That's called reconciliation. 
So let's look at, at Paul's summary, if you will, of this concept of reconciliation that's, that's laid out for us here that I just read for you. First of all, I want you to see that Paul wants us to understand that there is a plan of reconciliation. There is a plan of reconciliation that actually has been in place since before time began. And what I want, you to, what I want to point out to you here in this scripture is that it is the plan of God the Father to restore the original design of the universe. Remember that God created the universe good, right? Genesis chapter one, in the beginning, God created the heavens and earth, so forth and so on, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good. Remember that? That is something I want you to see, that the, the goodness of the creation was utterly destroyed by the sinfulness of man. So this good creation was marred by our sin, our father's sin, Adam and Eve, and so the human race, along with all creation, was fatally affected by what happened in the Garden of Eden. Something dramatic changed, and sin caused it. But God's plan is to reverse all that, to, to, to take it back to the original design. Many have the perception that God the Father is the dangerous member of the Trinity. Are you familiar with that? Have you thought that yourself, that, that we need to be careful of God the Father and, and we kind of are, are drawn to God the Son, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit, but you've got to watch out for the, the big guy, right? Well, that is, that is not uncommon to think of it that way, and I mention this whenever the text allows because it's an important uh, thing to understand as a Christian. It's unproductive and I think maybe even dangerous to think of God the Father in this erroneous way, which I think could get in the way of a healthy and happy relationship with God. So I want you to see and understand from Paul's summary here that the plan of reconciliation actually began with God the Father. God the Father's the one who thought it up. All right, now, now look, at, look at this. It began with the Father. We see here in verse 20 that he was behind, the Father was behind this gracious plan of reconciliation. Do you see that in verse 20? And through him, that is through Christ, to reconcile to himself, who? God the Father. In verses 15 through 19, we learn that God the Father planned reconciliation before humanity existed. Now, that's a bit hard for our minds to get wrapped around because it reveals God's purpose in creation. It's hard to understand why God would have a plan of reconciliation before one human ever needed it. But in fact, God has all history, human history, from before it began till after it ends, all planned every day of it. And so, before creation began, he established a plan of reconciliation, meeting the needs of fallen humankind, humankind before they ever fell. That was God the Father that did that. And so Paul begins this section describing the preeminence of the second person of the Godhead. The first person is the Father, the second person is the Son, the third person is the Holy Spirit. And Paul begins this section, starting in verse 15, of the, describing the preeminence of the second person of the Godhead over creation and the new creation. His supremacy, that is, 
Jesus Christ's supremacy is based on his creative initiative, which I discussed a couple weeks ago. It's based on his pre-existence, before all things began, he was, right? And him taking on human form to live with us. But it was God the Father who initiated this whole plan. I want you, if you wouldn't mind, turning back with me to Ephesians chapter 1. And I'm trying to teach you to scribble all over your Bible. Okay, this morning I scribbled on Ephesians chapter one because I wanted to communicate this to you and I wanted to not have to search and peck around in, in that chapter to find what I'm gonna to describe to you here in a moment. The point is the father is the one who initiated the plan of reconciliation. Look how it's confirmed in Ephesians chapter one. Are you there? Pen in hand, verse three. Blessed be, who? God the Father. Blessed be God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Who has blessed us with all the blessings that are associated with Jesus? The Father. So what I did is I circled God the Father. Now, look down at verse 4. Ephesians chapter 1 even as he, who's that referring to? The antecedent is God the Father. It's God the Father Paul's referring to. And even as God the Father chose us in Christ or in him before the foundation world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. Verse five, he, who's he? God the Father. He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, God the Father's will. Circle all these things, all these prepositions, all right? I mean, uh, pronouns, circle them. To the praise of his glorious grace, the God the Father's glorious grace, with which he, the Father's, has blessed us in the beloved. Now skip down to verse nine, making known to us the mystery of his will. These are all connected to the antecedent, God the Father, according to the purpose of, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ all referencing God the Father, all the way down through verse 11, which says, in him we've obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. All of them referring to God the Father. You know why you're saved? You know why you're going to heaven one day? Because God the Father's plan has designed it that way. That's right. He's a good God a loving God, a father, actually a father who wants you to be in fellowship with him. He's not a mean guy that you have to run from. No, he's a father that extends a loving hand, a, a loving son, his own son, to die in your place, to draw you to himself. That's the kind of father we're talking about. I hope you scribble in your Bibles, circle all those, connect them with lines, and make it look like you really are interested in this. If someone were to find your Bible someplace, right? Actually do it because it helps you think through the passage. But it is this, this plan of, of reconciliation began with the Father. And secondly, I want you to see back in Colossians chapter one, it's accomplished through the Son. It happens because of Jesus. As I preached on a couple of weeks ago concerning the fullness of God, all the fullness was contained in Jesus. All of God was contained in Jesus, not part, all. 
So Jesus is the full revelation of God's will and character. And if you want to know something about God the Father, if you're uncertain of how he is, look at the life of Jesus Christ. That's why it's revealed in the Gospels. How did he act? How did he live? How did he treat people? How did he speak? Your observation of those things will reveal to you what the Father, what the Father is like. Like Jesus said, I and my Father are one. And he says to Thomas, you've seen me. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so it's through the person and work of Jesus and nothing else that we can be reconciled to God. No amount of tears, please hear me, no amount of tears, no amount of good works, no amount of sacrificial living can accomplish only what Jesus does in our relationship to God. Look at verse 20 in Colossians chapter 1. It tells us that it is only through Jesus Christ that this is possible. How? Making peace by the blood of his cross. It's accomplished. Your reconciliation to your creator is accomplished through the work of Christ on Calvary. Right? Next, it encompasses all things. This might sound a bit strange to you, but all of creation needs reconciliation. The sin in the garden didn't just influence, impact, and cause a a alienation between God and man, it caused all this, this spiritual sickness between God and all of his creation, the trees, the rocks, the animals, the stars, etc. There has been a rift made between God and his creation because of sin. It has gone outside of the human race and infected everything around it. This is what we read in Romans chapter 8. Look at what it says about how the uh, creation, all of it, will one day be reconciled to its creator. Starting in verse 19, for the creation waits with eager longing. Yes, trees are longing, rocks are longing, fish are longing. That with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. I can explain this, so stay with me. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who, subject, who subjected it? The one who put the curse on Eve and Adam. God did. All right? But because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Just like you and, my, you and I desire that reconciliation, the freedom to relate once again to our creator, so does the universe. So does the trees. So do the rocks. So does the oxygen. This is what Paul is saying. I know. You guys are going, you know, it sounds strange. Well, keep listening. We know that the whole creation has been groaning, it says, Paul says in Romans 8.22, groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, waiting reconciliation. Now, one day, Paul said, when the sons of God are revealed, first of all, who are the sons of God? It's you and I, it's us. Those who are being reconciled, those who were elected before time began, those who redeemed, regenerated, the sons of God, that's who it's talking about. So one day, when all the sons of God are revealed, the whole creation will be restored 
and reconciled to its creator as the original design had it. So the, the question is, when will the sons of God be revealed? In the final day, the day of consummation, the sons of God being the elect, those saved by grace, will be revealed to all creation by God himself, saying, look what I have done for my people. I have restored them, I've regenerated them, I've reconciled them to myself. And so at that time, all things, including the, the, the rest of creation, <laughs> the material things that don't have life and spirits in them of themselves, will be reconciled to God. Now you say, what's that going to look like? The book of Isaiah and the book of Revelation tells us what this will look like. Let me share with you a few passages from Isaiah. Isaiah 11, for example, verses 6 through 9, tells us that the wolf will live with the sheep. Does that happen now? No. Uh, the young goat will sleep next to a leopard. It gets better. The calf and the young lion will be led around by a toddler. No more stuffed animals, real animals. All right, the nursing child will play with cobras. Now, <clears throat> sidelight story. When I was uh, two years old, my parents went to the mission field in Ecuador, South America, uh, to become missionaries. They took me for some reason, took, them, took me along. And uh, they went to language school, which was in a jungle outpost called Shelmeta. By the way, the same outpost that Nate Saint and the four of the missionaries took off from when they died at the hands of the Alka Indians. So in that place is where my parents were learning Spanish. I was a little guy running around out in the jungle with other two, three, and four-year-old kids. And, I, and my mom was in the house one morning, and I was outside the house. She sat in a ditch next to the house playing with a coral snake, a coral snake of all things. Uh, it's not a cobra, but it's fairly deadly. Um, to a three-year-old, a coral snake will kill it within about 30 to 45 seconds. I was playing with one of these things, and it wasn't the millennium yet. So there was a good chance that I could not have been your pastor. And you're saying, why didn't that snake bite that guy? <laughs> right? <laughs> well, my mom runs out of the house with a machete and hacks it in half and says, don't play with snakes that look like this. They'll kill you. And so... Uh, this is a little different, but similar. And then to, to finish it up, there will be no hurt, no destruction in that day. All right? There could have been hurt and destruction back when I was playing with the cobra, but not in this day. Not in this day we're looking forward to, the day of reconciliation of all things. There's more. Listen to this from Isaiah chapter 24, chapter 30, and chapter 60. The moon and the sun will seem unnecessary to us residents. Why? because of the brilliance flowing out of the throne of Jesus Christ in Jerusalem, present-day Jerusalem. There will, the, the, the throne of Christ will be set up there, and the, and the glory of Christ will bring, put out so much light, the moon and the sun will seem unnecessary to us. And, and <laughs> Revelation chapter 21 tells us that that moon and that sun will be seven times brighter than it is today. And it will seem unnecessary because of the brilliance glowing out of Jerusalem. 
<laughs> These chapters also tell us that all injuries, both physical, emotional, mental, psychological, and every other kind of injury will be healed. After the millennium, according to Revelation 21, that's after the millennium, this present world and universe will disappear. And God will recreate a new earth and new heaven, and we will live there forever in complete joy and bliss, completely restored to the original intent of God's creation. With everything that I've just mentioned, that's pretty amazing. What a future we have in store for us. When this earth and universe are recreated and we take, we take up residence there. What a man, what an amazing plan of reconciliation that we see. Secondly, I want to show you the necessity of the reconciliation from Colossians 1. Why do we need reconciliation? I mean, I know a lot of people who don't know Jesus that think they're doing fine. They seem to be having a good life. They've got plenty of income. They're healthy. They've got friends. Reconciliation with God. Why? Why would I need that? Well, verse 21 tells us why. Are you looking at your Bibles? Verse 21 says, And you, speaking of the Christians in Colossae, but refers to all of us, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Why do you need reconciliation? Because we are not too good a people. As much as we may fool people around us, as much as those neighbors of ours who don't know Christ seem to have it all together, what's in their heart only God knows, and here it's revealed, right? Alienated from God, in fact, hostile in mind towards God, they have hostile thoughts towards God, and they are full of bad and evil deeds. What in the world? So, we are by nature, Paul seems to be saying here, opposed to God. L listen to this. A great 17th century Christian woman named Lady Huntington invited one of her friends, who was the Duchess of Buckingham, to hear George Whitfield preach. She thought, this is something we can do together. Let's go listen to Whitfield. And if you know anything about Whitfield, he was, he was all over it. Uh, I'm really mild compared to Whitfield. But this is the reply she received, Lady Huntington received from the Duchess of Buckingham. Quote, it is a, monstr it is a monstrous thing to be, to be told that you have a heart as sinful as the common wretches that crawl on the earth. This is highly offensive and insulting, and I cannot but wonder that your ladyship should relish any sentiment so much at variance with high rank and good breeding. Uh, in case you didn't catch it, that was a major slam. It's like, no, that is grotesque thinking to consider such a possibility that I'm a sinner. You've heard these kind of things before, or you've heard of these kind of things before, I should say, because it's not an unusual sentiment. To, to the idea that we're sinners, uh, many, many recoil at the suggestion. I mean, you could try it out yourself if you're brave. Walk up to the next non-Christian you know and say, hey, I just want you to know you're a scumbag. Let me tell you, let me read it to you. You know, it, that never goes over well. Even if you use biblical terminology, it doesn't go over well. 
because no one wants to be told they're a sinner. No one wants to be told they're not good enough. No one wants to be told they're out of harmony with God, their creator. And so this is what Paul is, is telling us here. We have a need, all of us have a need for reconciliation to our creator. And look how Paul details the alienation that we have with God. He adds two descriptive words or terms. Hostile. He says you're alienated, and he says you're hostile in mind. And then he says you do bad deeds. What's the hostile in mind thing all about? Uh, it means that we have an active mental resistance to God thinking the worst in him. Always thinking the worst, the worst possible conclusion. So it's not uncommon to hear people judge God's character by asking um, their questions about what God is like. So they say this, what kind of God would send innocent people to hell? Or why does God allow innocent people to suffer? Are these genuine questions? Paul would say, no, they are not genuine questions. What they are really is hostile accusations against God's character. How could God be a loving being if he sends innocent people to hell? How could God care about humanity if people die in hurricanes? What is this God you're trying to convince me to follow? Those are hostile accusations against God's character. They're not questions that they want answers to. Of course not. Paul also said that this alienation is seen in evil behavior. Now, I don't need to explain that to anybody in the room because we're very well aware that this is what defines humanity, evil behavior. You cannot go look up any news report anywhere that does not include evil behavior. That's what makes the news, is evil behavior. If we all behaved, there'd be no news. You want to get rid of CNN? Start behaving. I don't know, that's an idea. But that's what they report on, is evil behavior. Some senator did this, the other one did that, you know, this big riot broke out here. And that's what, that's what is the description of our existence. So this alienation establishes our need for reconciliation. Now I want you to see here in this text the method, God's method of reconciliation. God's method of reconciliation is effective and comprehensive, hence apokatalasso, that word that Paul used. This is, this is Paul's description of why the reconciliation of God accomplished through Jesus Christ is so effective, so comprehensive. When we are at odds with people in our lives, and if we're healthy human beings, we seek reconciliation with those people that we're at odds with, right? So if you get into it with an employee or, or a fellow worker or your spouse or a child, you, if, if you're a loving person, a somewhat normal person, you desire to clear that up. And so you, you make a plan. You, you think about writing an email or buying some flowers or, or talking to them face to face to try to clear it up. And many times those efforts fall flat, don't they? Why? Because you're a sinner and they're a sinner. The plans of reconciliation that we create sometimes just don't work. But God, on the other hand, being perfect, has a plan of reconciliation that has no chance that it will not be accomplished. Why? 
because he is perfect in all of his planning. Listen to what it says in Isaiah 14, 24. The Lord of hosts has sworn, as I have planned, so shall it be. As I have purposed, so shall it stand. If God has a purpose, if God has a plan, guess what? It will happen. So his plan of reconciliation, there is no chance of failure. If you are going to be reconciled to God, it will happen. It's not like God just can't seem to convince you or God just can't seem to get it through your head that this, no. If you are one of the elect that were chosen before the beginning of time, guess what? At some point in human history, your human history, you will be converted by the good news of reconciliation. So, the whole story of the Bible is the story of God's glory in our reconciliation. It will stand. What does Paul say about the method of reconciliation? He says in verse 20 and 22 that God's method of glorifying his gracious character is in the death of Jesus Christ. Look at these verses. Verse 20, he makes peace by the blood of the cross of Jesus. Look at verse 22. He has now reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death. That's the method. You don't want to, how, you want to know how God accomplishes reconciliation? By killing his own son to pay the penalty required. So Jesus' suffering, death, and resurrection are what it takes to reconcile us to our creator and restore us to his original design. As drastic as that sounds, that, that tells you the significance of our rebellion, doesn't it? Listen to Paul's words that we heard uh, read earlier in the service, but I want to read them again for emphasis here. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 19 through 21. In Christ, God has, was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Here's the gospel. For our sake, God made him, the son, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God, acceptable to God, reconciled to God. Christ pulls this off with his death. And so God's plan of reconciliation was for his son to leave the glory and comfort of heaven, come here and take on human form, live a perfect life, die a criminal's death, so that you and I can come freely and joyfully into a relationship with our creator. Amen. That's, yeah, that's an amen. That's good news. So he did this because of our rebellious and sinful hearts, our hostility, really. And I want to... I wanna, take a short detour here and talk to you about this, the means. How it gets from the plan of God in eternity past into your heart. How it gets from out here, this mysterious, glorious reality, into your heart. How does that happen? Well, I, I just read it for you from 
2 Corinthians, um, which is an amazing thing that Paul repeats to the Romans and here to the Colossians. Let me read for you his explanation to the Romans on how it gets from here to your heart. Romans 10, 13 through 15. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? How is this going to work? How are you going to be reconciled, you personally? And how are they to believe in him who they have never heard? How are you going to hear about Jesus? And how are they to hear without a preacher? And how are they to preach unless someone is sent? As it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. Friends, it comes from the throne room of God before time began through the pages of scripture written by his apostles and prophets into your hearts that, is, that was delivered to you by a parent or a friend or a close family member, right? That's why you're sitting here. That's the means by which the reconciliation takes place. That's how you come to faith, by the means of faithful people who told you the gospel, who told you the story. He says this, Paul, in a few verses later in Romans 10. Faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. So, do you have people in your life that don't know Jesus? We all do. You know how they're going to come to faith? You know how they're going to be reconciled? Not by your glamorous uh, history. Not, not by your amazing testimony. They're going to come to faith by the word of Christ. Share people, share with people the word of Christ. That's, that's where the power lies. As wonderful as your testimony is and as important it is to you and those who know you, what is critical to my unsaved neighbor is the gospel of Jesus Christ, not my testimony. So give them a copy of John and say, read it and we'll talk. Or sit there and read it to them. That's where the power of reconciliation resides, is in the word of Christ. Let it flow from your lips freely and often. So Paul, in chapter 1 of, verse, chapter one of Colossians, verse 23, says he was a minister of this gospel, of this reconciliation. He said that you and I, in 2 Corinthians 5 that I just read for you, we are ambassadors of this same gospel for Christ. We are ministers. We are to be calling people to reconciliation. So my question to you is, Christian friend, are you ministering the gospel to people? Are you sharing the words of Christ with those you know and love? You've been strategically placed in your community, at your place of employment, in your specific neighborhood for the purpose of being a messenger of this reconciliation. That's why God has placed you where you are. So it's not because you like the color of the siding on your house that you bought that house. It's not because you like this or that about your job. God, in his omniscience and sovereignty, placed you in your job to be next to people who need to hear the gospel, placed you in your house, in your neighborhood, because there's a neighbor who needs the gospel. Not because it has a nice trellis. No, it's because you are now God's 
And everything about your life is his to be used for his glory and for the message of reconciliation. So let's go to the fourth point that Paul brings out, the result of reconciliation. What happens once you've been reconciled? Well, look what he says. Paul says this in verse 22. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order that, (laughs) here's the result, to present you holy, blameless, and above reproach before God. That's the result of reconciliation. This is what God the Father is after. That's the objective of his plan, is to produce Christ-like people. That's what reconciliation does. So, like I've said, we need reconciliation because of our alienated, hostile, evil existences. And we are completely and thoroughly without hope unless he reconciles us. But in his mercy, God loves us, made us alive together with Christ by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, and reconciled himself to us and put all things out of the way between a relationship between us and him. And so this salvation, this reconciliation results in holiness, blamelessness, and being above reproach. Now you're saying, well, Pastor John, if you would have seen me yesterday for five minutes, you would know that I'm not holy. And I could say the same thing to you. You know, just follow me around today and I'll prove to you I'm not so holy. Well, what's Paul talking about here? He's talking about positional holiness. He's talking about how God the Father, the one who planned this whole thing, views you if you're in Christ. If you've been reconciled, this is how God views you. So God's looking at you and sees all that you are in your sinful self needing reconciliation, and then he puts you in Christ by the work of the Holy Spirit, and he puts on the lenses of Christ and sees you through Christ's perfection. You are now perfectly holy as Jesus is holy. It's not your perfection, it's his perfection. Like John Bunyan said, there in heaven is my righteousness. It's the same thing with blamelessness. Could we blame each other for sin? Oh, yeah, easily. We could could just trash each other if we wanted to, but that's not the point. The point is we are, in fact, before the judge, the only judge that matters, blameless. No one can accuse us. We're above reproach. No one can accuse you before. You think that one of the people in this room is going to be standing next to you um, on judgment day and say, hey, God, did you, you know, want to hear something about this guy? <laughs> you should have seen the way he treated his neighbor back in 1980. If some of you weren't alive then, it was 2005. Th- this guy's horrible, God. You, gotta, you know who else is going to be there? No, who, uh, there's only going to be not who else. I should say the only person who will actually be there besides you is your mediator. It's not going to be your wife who can accuse you all day long, or vice versa. It's not going to be your dad. It's not going to be your pastor. It's going to be Jesus Christ. And from what I read in Scripture, he's going to stand in our defense on that day. 
Aren't you happy about that? Aren't you glad I'm not going to be there on your judgment? I'm, your, I'm real glad you're not going to be there on mine. I don't know if we'll get to watch each other's, but the only one who's going to be there is the one who died for us. Wow. So how do I know all this has happened to me? How do, know, how do I know that I've been reconciled? Isn't scripture great? It tells us. It tells us right here in the text on reconciliation. Look here for the evidence of reconciliation in verse 23. And this is just one of the many that Paul, one of the many evidences that Paul uses to encourage us as, as God's people, those who've been reconciled. Look at verse 23. He says, well, start at verse 22. He has now reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy, blameless, and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith. Stable, steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you've heard, which has been proclaimed in all, the, all creation. What's the evidence? That you stick to it. You, you don't disappear. You don't stop loving Jesus. You don't give up. You don't lose your fervor. You continue with the central truths of the gospel. You believe Jesus Christ. You prioritize him. Now, am I saying that you're going to have a perfect demonstration of a reconciliation between now and the day you die? Absolutely not. In fact, I'm telling you it won't happen. Uh, but what Paul is telling us, what the Holy Spirit is telling us, is that there is going to be a trajectory of life to those who have been reconciled, and it will be, in fact, Godward. It'll be continuing in the faith, continuing to embrace the gospel you heard, not being drawn away by all the other things we're hearing about pleasing God or making points with God or whatever else, you know, TV preachers are telling us, no, we believe the biblical apostolic gospel and we continue to faithfully live there. In spite of our failures, in spite of our ignorance, in spite of our not being able to answer all the questions critics have about God and our faith, we stay in the faith. We stick it out. You're still here. I, when I remember when I was a young man, Sherry and I were just married. We were attending a, Pan, a Tannen Pioneer. Um, Sherry grew up in that church, and we were attending there. And Pastor Jack Perry, I respected him. I loved him. And, and I don't know, I think I was 23 at the time. And I was struggling in my faith. I, at the time, I had serious questions about the authenticity of my faith. No assurance whatsoever. And so I went and talked to him about these things, hoping that he could wave a pastor wand over me or something. And and I would get over this insecurity of mine. And <clears throat> he told me something that has crossed my mind regularly ever since, concerning whether or not I have been reconciled, redeemed, regenerated. Um, he said this, referring to this verse, he said, John, keep on keeping on. That sounds pastoral, it sounds so simple. Keep on keeping on. Keep believing. Continue in the faith. Don't give up. Don't walk away. Show up next week. Be here. Continue in the faith. 
Embrace the gospel as it's, te- as it's taught in scripture, as it's been taught to you. Friends, <laughs> the plan of reconciliation was begun by God the Father, accomplished by God the Son, and encompasses all things, including rocks and trees. The necessity of reconciliation because of our alienation and hostility towards God and our evil deeds. We need reconciliation. The method of reconciliation is the person and work of Jesus Christ on the cross. The blood of his cross accomplished it. That's the method. The result of reconciliation is holiness, blamelessness, and being above reproach in the eyes of God, the only judge on the planet or in the universe. And then finally, the evidence of reconciliation is continuing in the faith, sticking it out. Let's pray. Oh God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, your work in our reconciliation is hard to comprehend, but causes, even though we don't comprehend it fully, causes our hearts to just well up in thanksgiving and joy and worship and praise. And so we acknowledge to you our need. We love you as our Lord and Savior. We pray that you would continue to affirm our faith. We pray that you would give us the stick to show up and to be your people today and tomorrow and the rest of our lives. Lord, bless us. Bless our church, I pray in your name. Amen.